Well, good morning. I gotta tell you, I've already been blessed to be able to be here. Uh, my name is Stu Davis. Um, most of you don't know me. You might be familiar with the place that I'm coming from, a place called the Springs Rescue Mission. I'll tell you more about that in a few minutes. But I, like I said, I've already been blessed to be here. I've been here since uh, earlier this morning and have gotten a chance to meet some of your staff and, and your volunteers. And I was up on the third floor getting prayed for this morning. And you got a, people in this, a group of people in this church who know how to pray, let me tell you. I walked out of that room after being in there for about a half hour with like a spiritual massage. Man, I felt, I felt good. So I'm, I'm blessed to be able to be here this morning. And uh, I, wanna, I want us to be able to look at some scripture together that I think is gonna be really relevant for just where we find ourselves as a city, where we find ourselves today um, on a Sunday morning here in Colorado Springs, and it is a beautiful morning, but if I could, let me just pray for us. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. Um, I thank you for the opportunity to gather and to worship you, not only through some incredible worship this morning, but also through the opportunity to explore your word together. And Lord, I pray that you would take an interaction that you had 2,000 years ago and speak through it to those of us who are listening today. Pray that you would open our ears, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds to be able to hear your voice fresh and new this morning. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to stand here, and I just pray that you would allow me to speak only what you would want me to speak and nothing else. In your name, amen. Well, like I said, I come from an organization called the Springs Rescue Mission. If you're not familiar with uh, what we do or who we are, we're a, a, a faith-based, a Christian organization here in town that provides both immediate and long-term services for folks who are facing poverty, homelessness, and addiction right here in Colorado Springs. And we deal with some of the folks in our community who literally have no other place to go. And if, if they find themselves struggling and, and kind of at the very bottom of our society, then the one place that really is open to them is a place kind of sandwiched between downtown and Motor City called the Springs Rescue Mission. And so last night we probably had some 300 homeless men and women who were sheltering on our campus in two separate shelters. They woke up this morning bright and early uh, to have some breakfast and we'll spend the day today trying to figure out how to kind of put their lives back together. And we'll talk about that, like I said, in a few minutes. But I have a bit of an interesting background. I was for about 12 years, 10 of those years here in Colorado Springs, I was a pastor uh, at another church here in town. And uh, I now get the chance to kind of work with a lot of different kinds of pastors and churches, just like Pastor Eric and Springs Community Church, but a lot of different kinds of, of, of churches all over this city. And, and I get the chance to see something that not too many people who just have their church home get a chance to see. And that's this, that that the church in Colorado Springs, the Big C Church, really is a beautiful thing. And I get to see, like I said, a lot of different kinds of churches, progressives and traditionalists and hardliners and conservatives and Anglicans and Baptists and Catholics and all different kinds, non-denominationalists all over the spectrum. And I think it's become kind of popular for both people inside the church and outside the church over the last really a couple of decades, to really kind of take a lot of pot shots at Christians. You know, they say things like we're brash or rude or wishy-washy or weak-minded or closed-minded or bigoted or arrogant or whatever it is, hypocritical, that you might hear people say. And I think some of those things can at some times be deserved. But the reality is, is that for all those people out there that might be doing, oops, that might be doing something uh, maybe untrue to the gospel, there's a lot of people who are both in quiet ways and in significant ways who are bringing the kingdom of God into their offices and their coffee shops and their conversations and their neighborhoods. And for every idiot that's out there doing something stupid in the name of Jesus that's getting splashed all over a headline or a newspaper front page, there's a lot of people 
who are out there just bringing the kingdom of God in, in, in some very significant but often unrecognized ways that will never make a headline. And, and I get the chance to see a part of that in some of the things that we do at Springs Rescue Mission and the ways that various churches around this city intersect with what we do. And I'm here to tell you that the church really is a beautiful thing. Now, it's a mess, but it's also beautiful. And, and this church, it may be a part of the mess, but it's also a part of the beauty too. And in addition to my role with a lot of other churches and such, I also get to interact with a lot of people who are uh, proudly outside the church. We'll say it that way. Um, and, and there's a lot of different kinds of people in this city, as you know. For anybody who's lived here for any length of time, you know that we in Colorado Springs kind of have this reputation of being this bastion of Christian conservatism, right? That everybody who lives here goes to an evangelical church on Sunday morning, votes Republican, and probably sponsors a compassion child. And that may be true for some group of people in our city, but for every person who's on this end of that spectrum, there's a lot of people who are on the other end of that spectrum too. And there's a whole lot who are right down the middle somewhere. And, and again, in our work with the city and various other organizations and lots of different kinds of people, I get a chance to see that whole spectrum. And it really is an amazing thing. And every now and then, I get to have an interaction like one that I want to tell you about this morning. A couple years ago, I was playing on a, a, a Sunday afternoon outdoor men's soccer team. And I got the chance to get to know this young man whose name, we'll, we'll just call him Billy. And Billy was maybe about 20 years old, uh, younger than most of the rest of the guys on the team, and was kind of a, a bit of an awkward guy. Nobody else on our team knew him. He just kind of got drawn out of the hat when they do the beginning of the season thing, and he just kind of landed on our team. And, and so uh, over, the next, over the course of the first few weeks of the season, Billy and I had a few conversations, but like I said, it, he was kind of an awkward guy, and it was a little bit tough to try and make conversation with him. And nobody else on our team really knew him very well, and so the reality was that not that many people paid attention to Billy until we had to when he actually got onto the field. So a few weeks into the season went by and somebody on the team had told him that I used to be a, a youth pastor. And so, you know, we're kind of doing our pregame stretches and warming up and all that kind of thing before we get onto the field. And um, uh, Billy kind of walks up awkwardly to me and tries to make a few light conversational comments. And then he goes, hey, hey Stu, um, somebody told me you used to be like a preacher or something. Is that right? And this is one of those questions that pastors get from time to time that they never really know how to answer. They never really know how to respond because it could be any number of things. It could be something very serious, you know, like my, I just got diagnosed with something. Could you help me out? Or it could be something that's like, you know, my mom's cat is sick or I locked my keys in the car or something like that. You just never know. And so I looked at Billy and, and, and I could tell that he was sincere and, and I had no idea what he was going to say, but I said, well, well, yeah, Billy, I used to be a pastor, if that's what you're asking. And he said, well, could we talk for a minute? And, and he got kind of serious. And so we stepped off to the side and, and I, I looked at Billy and I said, well, sure, Billy, what's going on? And, and I, I, like I said, I'd never had that many interactions with Billy up, up to this point. We just had had a few light conversations, but nothing really could prepare me for what he was about to tell me next. And Billy looked me in the eye and with all of his sincerity, he said, Stu, I'm gay, and I really need, feel like I need to have a relationship with God, but I don't know how. Can you help me with that? Now, I'm not always the brightest guy in the room, but I could tell that this was a significant moment. 
right? That this, this young man who, who didn't know me from anybody else in his life, he'd only known me for a handful of weeks and for just a couple hours on a Sunday afternoon for maybe three or four weeks at that. And I could tell that this young man was desperately trying to find somebody that he could open up a very hidden part of his life to. And, and I haven't had a lot of these kinds of conversations, but I've had enough to realize one thing, that that my response in the midst of that conversation would determine the future of my relationship with somebody who was just, just willing to open up a very shameful part of their life. And so as, as calmly as I could, after being thrown a huge curveball, I looked at Billy and I said, gosh, Billy, thank you for being willing to share that with me. Do you think that we could talk about this after the game? Um, and I was serious about that, and, and, and so we did. Uh, after the game, Billy and I went and we went someplace cool that we could find a drink together and just sat down for a couple of hours. And over the next several minutes, really the next couple of hours, I came face to face with the brokenness in this young man's story in a way that, A, I wasn't prepared for, in a way that I don't think even he was prepared for. And, and I was given a choice in that moment that I could either look at this young person's brokenness and walk away, or I could do something different and enter into a further conversation and find out mo what more was going on in this young man's life. And I'll tell you more about what happened with Billy in a few minutes, but I wanna ask if you've ever been in a situation like that, where maybe you were on the receiving end of somebody's confession and they, they, they saw something in you or felt something in you that, that birthed in them this need or this desire to bring something to the surface that maybe caught you by surprise, but was still something that was very clearly something that they needed to get out to somebody. Or maybe for you, you were on the kind of the confessing end of that conversation where you, you saw something in somebody else or you just felt this need to get something out and, 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 and let a part of yourself come out to somebody that you had before then tried to keep hidden. And, and maybe when you did that, the person who you confessed to responded poorly and they sent you this message that whatever it was, that needed to be, it needed to be put back in the corner. It was too shameful, too dark, and it just needed to be put back to wherever it came from. Or maybe they responded in a different way and whatever it was about them invited you to further conversation, to maybe even further confession or, to, or perhaps to even uh, further discovery about yourself and about who this guy Jesus was in a way that allowed you to be able to find hope or freedom or healing for the first time. But if you've ever been in that kind of a conversation, whichever side of the conversation you were on, I'm willing to bet that that confession was born out of some kind of a relationship. Most people just don't go around spilling their biggest secrets to just total strangers. Unless, of course, if you're a pastor, in which case it happens all the time. But, but if, I'm willing to bet that, like I said, most of the time that was born out of some kind of a relationship. A relationship that gave birth to this idea of, of hope or restoration, again, perhaps for the first time. I have a, pa a, a friendship with another pastor here in town named Greg Lindsay, who said something uh, about a year ago to me that, uh, has really stuck with me for quite a while. He said that conversations move us from condemnation to compassion. Conversations move us from condemnation to compassion. Think about how true this is in your life. 
right? For those of you who have kids, I have three kids of my own. Think about like that parent of, a, of another kid in your kid's school and the kid's always picking on your son or your daughter and you would love to just get your hands right around that parent and just say, do you know what that kid's doing to my kid and all those kinds of things? But then when you find out that something's going on that maybe that mom is a, is a single mom, newly divorced and she's got, had to go back to work to try and support her, her young family for the first time in several years, that conversation moves you from condemnation to compassion, right? Or we've all got that neighbor in our neighborhood who just can't seem to figure out that they're not the only person who lives in the neighborhood and they do all kinds of things that drive everybody else in the neighborhood crazy and you just wish that they would just leave so that everybody else could have a little bit of peace. But when you find out that that neighbor has a business partner who, who embezzled all of your neighbor's life savings and ran off with their business and now he has no money, no income, and no business, no work, that conversation moves you from condemnation to compassion. Conversations. It's the same kind of conversation that I had with Billy that day. It's the same kind of conversations that we find ourselves in a lot. And unfortunately, as Christians, sometimes it's, it's in these moments of these conversations that we often earn the criticisms that we sometimes hear. Right? Because instead of having compassion for somebody's brokenness, we often express judgment or disdain or disgust for somebody's sinful choices. And rather than allowing us to see the person, we start seeing the situation or somebody's circumstances. And I'm not suggesting that we desensitize ourselves to sin, but I am suggesting that perhaps in those moments we start finding ways to give hope to people and to lead them towards some sort of trans transformation. And this is what we do at Springs Rescue Mission every single day, because I can walk outside my office door and I can find pimps and prostitutes, uh, victims and abusers. I can find all different kinds of people. And every day we have a choice as people file into our shelter, as people come in for a meal, as people wanna sit down with a case manager and try and figure out how to get out from underneath these circumstances. We have to figure out how to look past somebody's circumstances and try to see the person who's looking for some kind of hope. And it happens, you doesn't, you, but you don't have to go down to the rescue mission to find that sort of situation. We have to choose every day what we do with people's brokenness. And Jesus was really a master at this, wasn't he? He was exceptionally good at somehow looking beyond people's circumstances, creating conversations with people that oftentimes most of the religious folks didn't want to have anything to do with, right? Prostitutes and politicians, the sacrilegious. And he had this way of looking beyond their stuff and inviting them into a conversation that oftentimes for the very first time birthed hope or some kind of opportunity in them. And we see an interaction just like this in John chapter 4. And so if you have your Bible, you can look there. Uh, if not, we'll have some of the, the story up on the screen. But as you're getting there, let me just see if I can set the stage for you. This is a very, very familiar conversation for any of you who have been around the church for any length of time. But in John chapter 4, uh, Jesus is in the midst of, or I guess on the back end of one of his many visits to the holy city of Jerusalem. And I don't know how many times Jesus had been there. It's likely he could have gone there at least every year of his life up to this point, but he'd certainly been there several times. And John chapter three actually has a very interesting conversation of its own where Jesus has this interaction with a religious official named Nicodemus. And he introduces Nicodemus to this idea of being born again, which must have been a crazy conversation in and of itself because as much as you and I might've heard that in church somewhere, uh, Nicodemus didn't have Billy Graham to interpret Jesus to him, and that just must have been a crazy conversation all on its own. And this 
when, when the Holy Week was done, the opening verses of John chapter four tell us that Jesus felt the need to, to just get out of Jerusalem and head back towards Galilee. We weren't, weren't exactly sure why. He just knew he needed to head home. And so it says this in verse three, it says, so Jesus left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. And now he had to go through Samaria. Now, when I read this verse, when most of us read this verse, we probably look at this and we say, well, okay, no big deal. Jesus went from this place to this place and he had to go through this other place. But if you've ever heard anybody kind of un unpack this story before, you know that Jews didn't just go through Samaria, right? Jews and Samaritans didn't really get along. And so the idea of a God-fearing Jew kind of making his way through Samaria just wasn't really kosher, right? I mean, nobody just walked through Samaria. So let me just see if I can kind of paint the picture this way. Um, you can go ahead and put those maps up there. Uh, on, let's see, on the left is Jesus' uh, version of, of, of is Jerusalem and Israel in Jesus' day. On the right is where we live in modern day Colorado, right? So let's just say that there was a, a big election week event that happened uh, sometime, let's say this coming November, there was, there's an election cycle that's coming up and everybody has to go up to Denver for something, for this whole week long thing. And because there's gonna be so much traffic and they're thankfully widening the gap between Castle Rock and uh, Monument, you know, you can, just can't drive, everybody's gotta walk. And at the end of the week, you gotta, you gotta walk all the way back from the Capitol in the center of Denver all the way down to your home in Widefield on the south end of Colorado Springs. It's about 60 miles, which is about the same distance as it is from Galilee to Jerusalem. And if you've ever made that drive, which most of us have from Denver to Colorado Springs, you know the undulation and, and the terrain and all that kind of stuff, which is very similar as it would be in Israel in Jesus' day. But it's a dry, hot desert in Israel as opposed to this nice mountain air that we get here. But at the end of that week, you gotta make that walk. But if you're a God-fearing Jew, it means that instead of going down through Douglas County, which is the county right north of El Paso County, if you're a God-fearing Jew, you have to walk around Denver County, out through Albert County to the east so that you miss D uh, uh, Douglas County and then back into El Paso County to get all the way to your home in Widefield, which is gonna add about two days to your walk. So even though Jesus is fully God, he's also fully man, and you can understand why the guy might, after a long week of Holy Week festivities, might opt to just lop two days off of this Mediterranean hike and just go straight through Samaria instead of going all the way around. And so here Jesus is, he comes to this halfway point in his little Mediterranean hike, about two and a half days in, he comes to this well that's sacred to both Jews and Samaritans. And if you're unfamiliar with why there was so much hatred between Jews and Samaritans, let me just sum it up this way. About 700 years before Jesus came around, the Israelites were sacked and, and conquered by a group of, of folks called the Assyrians, who were a really, really nasty group of people. A lot of historians would say that this was the nastiest, bloodiest army that ever walked the face of the earth. So the Assyrians came in, they, they sacked the city of Jerusalem, they conquered the whole nation of Israel, and they carted off all the middle and high class society folks back to Assyria where they could brainwash them, and they left all the poor folks back to work in the land, and then they flooded in all these high society folks who were loyal to the crown of Assyria to just try and breed out all the Israelite folks. Well, you can imagine what that might have looked like. And so after 70 years, when the Israelites from, who had been carted off to Assyria were allowed to come back home, they found this half-breed of people with really bad theology and even worse politics. And that set off generations of infighting between the Jews and the Samaritans. And essentially, the Jews were mad at the Samaritans for corrupting the people of God, and the Samaritans were mad at the Jews for allowing themselves to be left behind to get raped, pillaged, and abused for a generation. 
And all that stuff just continued to, to compound on itself for the next several hundred years uh, until we find this situation in which Jesus is coming into Samaria and comes to this well. So Jesus comes to this well and he encounters a woman. Jesus is a Jew. She's a Samaritan, and in that culture, Jesus should never have addressed this woman, not only because she was a Samaritan, but just for the fact that she was a woman. But understandably, Jesus is hot and he's tired, and he does the bold thing here, something that I think you and I don't really have a context for how offensive it could have been. But he just starts a conversation and just says, woman, will you give me a drink? And over the course of the next few minutes, Jesus has this way of opening up and inviting a conversation with a woman that he shouldn't have been caught dead talking to and opening up her trust. And in only a few minutes, in verse, in verse 13, uh, he throws this curveball at her about living water. He says this, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water, the water in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, naturally, this woman's still thinking that he's talking about just normal, natural water, right? I mean, that's where this whole conversation started. Why wouldn't he be? To which she says this, well, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water over again. And she says, basically, sir, if there's any way that you can rescue me from this situation of having to come back here all alone, you know, without this loving community around me, then I need, I need that. And if you've ever heard pastors talk about or preachers talk about this story before, then you've heard that maybe they could draw inferences about this woman's situation and what it is that caused her to be there at midday instead of the cool of the morning when everybody else came out to draw water. But the reality was is that she was alone. And she comes to this well alone and she says, sir, please help me. And right here at this point, she's looking beyond water. She's looking for something that's more than just what's gonna fill this jar. She's looking for hope, to which Jesus, in a way that only he can, uses one line to hit right at the deepest point of her pain. And he says this, go call your husband and come back. Well, I have no husband, she replied. To which Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And there it is. All of her dirty laundry laid right out on the table in a 10-minute conversation. And the next line really is kind of funny to me because the woman looks at Jesus and she says, I can see that you're a prophet, right? It's like, whoa, what a revelation right there, right? I mean, in 10 minutes, he just pulls all your stuff right out of the table and, and you have this insight to be able to say that this, this guy's clearly something unique. Well, it's true, and she knew that that was true, and she tries to change the conversation, which is probably what any of us would try to do if Jesus had pulled all of our dirty laundry out in, ten, in a 10-minute conversation. But at the end of this brief conversation, she ends up confessing the same thing to Jesus that Billy did to me that day on the soccer field. That whatever her background or beliefs, whatever her theology or her worldview, whatever broken place that she came from, she knew that she needed a rescue. Because she says this in verse 25, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. You see, I'm a mistress and I need the Messiah is the same confession as I'm gay and I need Jesus. 
Which, by the way, if we were being willing to be honest with ourselves, would probably be the same confession that most of us would make. Fill in the blank however you want to. I'm angry, I'm greedy, I'm tired, I'm frustrated, I'm a liar, I'm a cheater, I'm an addict. Whatever it is that you fill in the blank with, but I still need Jesus, is the same confession that all of us at one point need to come face to face with. So at some point, I have to come to grips with the fact that I'm just very much like this woman at the well. And there are two really interesting conclusions to this story. The first is that right at this point, when the woman says that, it's Jesus' disciples who show up on the scene and make it very clear that they do not approve of this conversation. And, 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 and so it, it actually says this in verse 27. Just then, Jesus' disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Didn't say a Samaritan woman, just a woman they were shocked at. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? And then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And for all the trust that Jesus had established in the last few minutes, it's his very own followers who shut down and move off all of that opportunity that he had opened up for hope and makes it clear that the conversation is over. And she leaves very quickly, so quickly that she leaves her jar of water behind. But the other interesting conclusion is that this woman actually goes back to a community that she had been ostracized from and with clearly a lot of fervor and enthusiasm goes back and tells everybody that they need to come out and see him. And over the next two days, Jesus spends his time preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God to a whole bunch of people that he never, ever should have been in front of to begin with. Up to this point in the the book of John, this is Jesus' biggest outpost for ministry two days that he spent in enemy territory in a conversation he never should have been having. And it's amazing what happens at the end of the story in verse 42. The community said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, but now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. And what started with a jar of water and a conversation resulted not only in this woman's life being transformed, but in the transformation of the entire community. Now, I don't want to be too forward about why I wanted to put this passage in front of you, but I do want to help you understand what this looks like in in the place that I go to every single day called the Springs Rescue Mission. Essentially, we've boiled down our work with the city's homeless and impoverished and addicted um, adults and families to a philosophy of change that just comes right out of this conversation. And it all begins with a relationship. In our work, the people that we encounter every single day all lack one fundamental thing, and it's not food, it's not clothing, it's not housing, it's not any any material thing, it's hope. It's the one fundamental thing that the people we work with lack. And, 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 and it, and, it, and it inspires this transformation, this movement, this, this philosophy that we've started to outline as we come alongside these folks. And it looks like this. If you could go ahead and put it up on the screen. It's five words that kind of work in sequence. And I apologize if that's a little bit small, but I'll explain it. Relationship, hope, empowerment, transformation, and restoration. And, and this, ha- this is what happened in this encounter in John chapter 4, that 
that Jesus encountered this woman and started to develop some kind of a relationship with her. An initial one, not a significant one, just like Billy and I had that day on a soccer field, but it was some sort of relationship, an encounter that produced the opportunity for her to have some kind of hope in which she says, please give me this water. And when she's given that water, given that hope, she gets the opportunity, she's empowered to then start looking at her situation about her five husbands and about the the, the circumstances that she finds herself in. And when she's empowered to start examining those circumstances, it leads towards some sort of transformation, some sort of, 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 of transformation where she can look and say, could this be the Messiah? And then when she takes that message back to her community, she ends up being restored to a community that, that had previously put her out. And, and, and the whole entire community itself is restored because of this encounter that she has with one man. Relationship, hope, empowerment, transformation, restoration. And can I just stop here and say, is this not the gospel in itself? Is this not what Jesus has done for every one of us? That uncontent to just sit amongst the stars in the heavens and and look at us from afar, Jesus entered himself, wrapped himself in human skin so that he could have a relationship with us, to be able to close the gap between himself and us, between heaven and earth, because of this thing called sin, and because of that relationship that we somehow have the opportunity for the first time ever to have hope that we could get out of that life of sin, and that that hope creates in us this empowerment, empowerment because of the Holy Spirit that comes in us to empower us start transforming our life so that we could start looking like this person called Jesus. And not only me, myself, or you, yourself, that we collectively could be transformed into this thing called the bride of Christ, the church of God, so that together, collectively, all things could be restored to, the, to its original purpose and glory for which God created it. Relationship hope, empowerment, transformation, restoration. This process describes what we do every single day, whether it's working with the woman who's been sleeping under a bridge for 10 years and is coming to us for a meal, or it's that family who's living in a car and who can't, who's just trying to figure out how to hold it together, or it's the addicted man who just can't figure out how to hide his addiction any longer. This underlines everything that we do. Because the reality is that no lasting change, think about this, no lasting change in your life, in their life, my life, happens outside of a trusting relationship. Right, if you have found a relationship with Christ, you know that it's that relationship that has produced any sort of lasting or or positive change in your life. And And that's the thing that so many of our guests at Springs Rescue Mission often lack. But that relationship can be a very difficult thing to provide, can it? I get it, right? We, we, we all have those people, that neighbor, right? That friend, that, that parent of that kid in your classroom. It can be very difficult because what if somebody sees me talking to this person? What if, what if they ask for something that I can't provide? What if, what if, what if they, they drag me into all of their stuff? I can't afford to do that. I get it. Those are all very real fears. They're scary ideas. But just like the woman at the well was caught off guard by a man willing to share a jar of water with her, it's why we say at the Springs Rescue Mission that so much of what we do starts with a cup of coffee. Because just like a, a, a jar of water to a, sleepy, or to, a, to a tired, hot hiker on a Mediterranean five-day hike is refreshing, a cup of coffee to a sleepy, 
cold, homeless man can open up all kinds of opportunities. But, but I also don't want to miss what this might mean for you and me, just normal, everyday people who are trying to follow Jesus in everyday life. For many of us, the idea is the same, right? What could happen if I were willing to open myself up and have a conversation with somebody who is in need, to, to potentially inspire hope in somebody who needed to find it for the first time? What if when we came face to face with people's kind of deep, dark secrets, instead of running away or expressing shame or disgust, we were willing to enter in and to have a conversation? I, I told you that I'd come back to that story about Billy, and, and I'll be, again, the first person to admit that I've been in a number of these conversations, and they don't always go particularly well. But over the course of the next several weeks and actually quite a few months, Billy and I continued to have conversation after conversation, sometimes at a local coffee shop, sometimes it was at my house. And several months after that initial conversation, Billy and I sat on my back porch as he prayed to receive Christ for the first time in his life. And, and, and Billy has continued, now that was four or five years ago, I think Billy turned, turns 25 this summer. And, and Billy has continued to struggle with what it looks like to reconcile this new life that he's found in Christ with this old life that continues to haunt him quite a bit. But isn't that the same that all of us are doing, right? Trying to reconcile what it looks like to follow this guy, Jesus, with this old life of sin and shame that we've tried to distance ourselves from. It's the same in Billy's life. And I wanted to share that story about Billy because the woman at the well in this encounter in John chapter four was a total outcast in her day. She was completely ostracized from the religious folks in her community. Billy had grown up in a religious environment and somehow over the course of his, his younger years, his teenage years, his young adult years, he had found himself on the outside of the community of people that he had grown up in, sometimes because of choice and sometimes just because of circumstance. And this same work that we do at the Springs Rescue Mission every day of trying to look past people's sin and circumstances and trying to see the person who needs hope is the same thing that you and I get the opportunity to do every single day if we're looking for it, if we're willing to have that conversation, if we're willing perhaps to share a cup of coffee with somebody that oftentimes, if we're honest, just rubs us the wrong way. And what would happen if, if we extended conversations to, to, to those kinds of folks every single day? that neighbor, that parent, that teammate, that classmate, that coworker, whoever it might be. And this is what I encourage people to do as it relates to people who are standing on street corners asking for help. To, to be perfectly honest with you, nothing that you're gonna hand outside of a, of a car window is gonna help somebody get off the street corner, but you might be the only person in their day who rolls down a window in the 60 seconds that you have at that light, who gives them the dignity of looking them in the eye, asking what their name is, introducing yourself, and maybe even getting the opportunity to pray for them. You might be the only person who gives them that gift all day. Or come down to the Springs Rescue Mission and help us serve a meal and see what it looks like to enter into a conversation with somebody who really is struggling to try and put their life back together and just see where the conversation takes you. I can probably guarantee you that it will change your paradigm or your perspective on homelessness. It will help you move from condemnation to compassion. But I'll warn you that this process takes time. It takes time to help people move along this spectrum from relationship all the way to restoration. I know that for us at the rescue mission, oftentimes we find ourselves dealing with the same individuals, the same men and women uh, month after month, or perhaps even for some year after year. And that's okay. 
Because I know that Jesus has been working on me for a long time. And I still got a long way to go. I don't know about you, but I haven't reached the finish line yet, and I probably never really will. It's going to take Jesus a long time to chisel away all the stuff that I've got inside. Some people just wear their stuff on the outside, as opposed to a lot of us who just keep it hidden. And if you want to find out more about what this looks like at the rescue mission, then I'd invite you to come volunteer sometime. Come spend some time on our campus. But however it looks, I think we as Christians oftentimes tend to try and hold two things in our hands at the same time, truth and love. Right? And it's often very difficult to, 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 to balance those two things. And so for whatever reason, a lot of times truth ends up leading the conversation, hoping that we will somehow truth people to find the love of God. But what if we started reversing that dynamic and having people and leading with love and loving people towards God's truth? I think that's what we see in John chapter 4. We see Jesus, fully God and, and fully man, who extended love through hope and a conversation to a woman desperately in need who eventually found herself face-to-face with the truth of who this Messiah was. So let's stop truthing people towards love and start loving people towards the truth. Can we do that? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I am grateful for the church, the Big C Church in Colorado Springs. I'm grateful for what it is that you have called us to do and to be in our community. And Lord, I just pray that as we continue to encounter people in need, whether it's our neighbor across the street or a coworker across the hall or a homeless man across town, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to move from condemnation through compassion. Help us to be willing to engage in conversations with people. They are people, people that you love, so that we could extend a relationship that leads to hope and empowerment and transformation, so that as a community, we could be restored to reflecting the kingdom of God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen.